We're in a series called I Am Jesus, which is all about the life of Jesus here on the earth. And we're studying him up close and personal to find out who he really was, what he really did, what he really taught, so that we can know him for ourselves and not rely on rumors or hearsay from other sources. And last week we saw Jesus beginning his ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist and a bunch of amazing things happening around that incident. And then surprisingly as a next step, being led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. That's a rough kind of Monday. But that's where our story starts off today. If you follow me on Facebook, you'll know that my kids have gotten hooked on this show, Man vs. Wild, which has been around for a while with this guy, Bear Grylls, this survival expert. What he does is he basically drops in or parachutes into dangerous exotic locations and non-exotic locations and shows you how to survive. But the thing is, this guy's an ex-Special Forces British SAS guy. He's in amazing shape. And so I'm constantly watching it, paying attention, because I'm thinking, you know, if I, if I ever do get stranded on a desert island, I've got to know what to do. So, but he will always do something like say, you know, what you want to do is you want to shimmy up a tree, get a look around the land, see what's going on. And you watch it, and I immediately begin to think, I haven't shimmied up anything since I was like 10. I'm pretty sure I can't shimmy up anything right now. And the, the more I watch, the more I come to the conclusion that if I'm ever stranded in an isolated location, I'm pretty much dead. That's really what I've learned from the show, because I'm nothing like Bear Grylls. I'm nothing like him. And today we're going to examine the temptations that Jesus went through in the desert. And what makes them so extraordinary is that Jesus never once relies on any type of superhuman God power to withstand the temptation. And that's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, if you're tempted by Satan, just remember, you're the son of God and you can resist it. He doesn't say that. He combats Satan using things that you and I can do. And he experiences victory in his life using techniques that you and I can use. And that's what we're going to find out about in our study today. So Jesus is in the wilderness. There's no indication he knows even how long he's going to be there. Holy Spirit says, go out into the wilderness. Okay, he's in the wilderness. But he trusts the Holy Spirit. He knows that every day when he wakes up, he is where the Father wants him to be that specific day. That's what he knows. And that's enough for Jesus. He's not overwhelmed by where am I going to be in a week? Where am I going to be in a month? He just says, I am today where God wants me to be. And that's enough for me. He has that sort of attitude. I read a, a great quote this week by Kari Ten Boom. And she said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He trusts the Father. He follows the Holy Spirit's leading into the wilderness, into a place where most people would say, why would the Holy Spirit lead you there? But he trusts the Holy Spirit. Jesus' temptation is important to us because it's what allows one of the greatest verses ever written to be true. I love this verse. It's, it's in Hebrew 4 and it says this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says that Jesus was tempted as we are. And what's incredible 
about that statement is that Jesus never looks down on us and says, you know, you guys are pathetic. I mean, like, really? That, again, pathetic. The Bible tells us that Jesus understands the stress of temptation. He understands how hard it is to remain faithful, and he sympathizes with us. He doesn't excuse it because he's sympathetic. He gives us his power because he's sympathetic. He gives us his power generously so that we can overcome the circumstance and the temptation that we're facing. Jesus was the only one who's been through it himself and come out the other side clean. He's been tempted by the devil himself and came out unscathed. And so he's able to help us as well in our temptations and in our situations. Here's today's very first fill-in. It's profound, and it might take you a while to get this, but But track with me. This is deep. In order for the temptations of Christ to be temptations, they had to be temptations. They had to be temptations. In other words, these had to actually be things that Jesus wanted to do, but would require rebelling against the will of God the Father. If Jesus looks at these things and has no desire to do them, They're not temptation. You know, if I'm sitting there, it's not really a temptation if someone comes to me and says, Jeff, you know, if you uh, help me move these boxes, I'll give you a salad. For real. It's not really a temptation, you know. Or, you know, if somebody says, hey, you know, Jeff, if you help me steal this car, I'll let you go jogging for 30 minutes. It's not really a temptation for me. But in order for these things to be temptations, they had to actually be appealing to Jesus. And it's important that we understand that as we dig into our study. They were tempting to his human nature, to his flesh. These were temptations that were handpicked by Satan himself. This is Satan's best shot at the time. And he's not showing up with his weak stuff. Today's study also proves something else. We know that while Jesus never sinned on the earth, he was tempted. But being tempted didn't cause him to sin. So we need to understand that it is not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to temptation. Jesus was tempted, but he never gave into it. He was tempted, but he never sinned. He had the proverbial carrot dangled in front of him, but he never took a bite. He never took the bait, even though the hook was there. And you have to give Satan credit for having a great sense of timing because Scripture tells us Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. He doesn't eat. He's been fasting a long time. Last week, Luke, the deep theologian, pointed out the fact that after 40 days, Jesus was hungry, which we would never have guessed without Luke's insight. But after 40 days, about six weeks, Jesus is there. Satan doesn't show up on day one with a Twinkie and say, feeling snackish? Hmm? 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 He doesn't do that. He doesn't even put it down and say it'll still be good in 40 days or 40 years. He doesn't do that. Satan waits 40 days, then he shows up. No matter how spiritual Jesus is, everything in his body is craving food on a biological level. It's an involuntary hunger that he has. He's starving. And that's when Satan shows up. When you're in that mode 
when everything looks like food. I don't know if you've ever been there. You know, you see your friend talking and their head just looks like a ham. Jesus is in like, he's in that sort of mode. You know, Satan doesn't show up to tempt us with money when we're lonely. He doesn't. He, He doesn't show up to tempt us to steal when we're depressed. Satan's temptations are designed to take advantage of the hungers that we have in life to catch us at our weakest moments, and he shows up knowing what he's doing. He's not just taking shots in the dark. He's tailor-making a temptation for you and I all the time that has the greatest possibility of success. That's what he does. So here's Satan coming into our story, the opportunist, the patient tempter. We're going to start in verse 3 of Luke chapter 4 in your Bibles. It says, And the devil said to him, the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And I want to point out one thing about the original Greek because it changes the way you view the sentence. The word if actually has four different tenses in the original Greek. And the tense that's being used here actually means since. And this verse is better translated as since you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Satan's not challenging Jesus to prove he's God. Jesus is like, I was there, you know, when you were thrown out of heaven. We remember each other. You know, this isn't really a game that Satan can play. Prove your God. He's like, oh, you don't remember my face when you fell to the earth? Oh, too bad. They know each other. So Satan is saying, since you are the son, you are the son of God. You know that? I know that. So, you know, turn these stones into bread. Turn them into bread. It's been 40 days since Jesus has eaten. And, and so Satan's temptation is basically, you're hungry. But here's the good news, Jesus. You have the ability. You have the power to satisfy your own hunger. You can do it. In fact, God the Father gave you that ability. So how can it be wrong for you to use it? Uh, the Father wants you to satisfy the desires of your heart, right? I mean, he wants you to be happy, so... So use your abilities. Satisfy your hunger. Take care of business. And this is the first temptation. To not submit our God-given abilities to God. To not submit our God-given abilities to God. And how often are we tempted in this way by Satan? Where we're waiting for God's plan. We want to see God move in our lives. And Satan comes along and he says, you could wait for God's plan or you just make it happen. You just make it happen. Perhaps the most obvious example of this is the temptation you face when you're single as a Christian. And it's the desire of your heart to be married. And Satan shows up one day when you're really hungry for bread, metaphorically. And uh, Satan reminds you you're not single because you're ugly. There's like a lot of people that would love to be with you. You don't have to be single. This isn't an involuntary situation. I mean, God, God made you the way you are. So if someone's, you know, attracted to you, then God's probably working through that. So why don't you just go make it happen? Come on, turn these stones into bread. Make it happen. And if you buy into the lie, you'll go find someone who's not God's plan for you. 
you'll find someone who doesn't share your commitment to Jesus and you'll convince yourself that they're the one. You'll convince yourself because Satan's been whispering in your ear, come on, you can, you can turn them into that person. I know, they, I, know, I know they look like a stone right now, but you know, over time they'll, they'll turn into bread. They could be that person. And we see this again and again and again and again. And if there's one point I, I always want to harp on, because I care, I care about you, is if you're single, don't settle. Man, do not settle. Please, 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 don't settle for someone who doesn't share your commitment to Christ. Because the thing that's most important to you in your life, you will not have in common with the person most important in your life. That's a level of pain that right now you cannot even begin to understand if you've never been through that. It will be the worst decision that you ever make, ever. It is far better to wait for God's plan than to try and turn stones into bread just because you can. And so how does Jesus respond to this temptation? Verse 4, Luke 4, it says, But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written in the Bible, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, this thing, this hunger that I have, right now it's for literal food. Maybe for you it's a spouse. Maybe for you it's something else. Jesus is saying, listen, God's word tells us there is more to my existence than this bread. There's more to life than this. It's God that brings me to life. It's God that keeps me alive. It's God that fulfills me. Jesus doesn't say, I'm not hungry. He doesn't say, I'm not hungry. He just says, there's more to life than the hunger I'm feeling right now, even though my body is screaming out in hunger and the pains of hunger. Jesus keeps perspective and he says, there's more to life than that. Even in this moment, there's more to life. What a perspective, because when we're hungry for something in life, have you ever noticed you tend to get tunnel vision? And what happens over time is that thing starts to become elevated in your life. And suddenly, instead of looking to God as your hope, instead of looking to God as your salvation and your strength, that thing begins to climb up in importance in your life till it reaches the point where it's an idol. It's higher than God because you look at it and you say, if I had that, I would be complete. If I had that, then everything would be perfect. I would be happy. I would have peace. I would be fulfilled. And it's turned into an idol and it's become elevated higher than God himself. That's what happens when we're hungry unless we remember what Jesus said. Man doesn't live by bread alone. There's more to life than this. Yes, I'm hungry. Yes, the desire is there. But there's even more to life than this. When we get to that place of desperation where it's an idol, that's when Satan shows up and he says, you know, this thing over here sure, sure looks similar to God's plan. I mean, like from a distance, you know, it might be far from good, but it's pretty good from far. So, you know, why don't you uh, just make it happen? Make it happen. Remember Jesus' response. Jesus said, God is the one who gives me life. Not that thing. It's God. You can put this on your outline. Jesus had the power to do anything. 
but the authority to do only what the Father had asked him. And this is where Jesus is like us. Jesus only ever operated in the authority that the Father gave him. That means Jesus only ever did what the Father told him to do. That's all he ever did. So when Jesus did miracles, he's not operating in some super secret power that he has. He's operating in the power of the Father and the Holy Spirit flowing through him. He's fully man, he's fully God, but he's doing these miracles with the power of God flowing through him because he's perfectly in sync with the will of the Father. He's perfectly in tune with the Father. So the Father's power is flowing through him. Holy Spirit is flowing through him. And that's why Jesus tells us, listen, there's, there's nothing I've done outside of the cross that you can't do. It's a paraphrase of what Jesus says. He says, you'll do greater things than this. Some of you will. Greater things than raising the dead. Greater things than casting out demons. Greater things. Because Jesus says that same power that I use to do those miracles is available to you. The same power. Because he operated in the Father's authority, not even in his own power. If you want to see God's power in your life, you want to see his power in your life, then get in tune with the Father. And God's authority will begin to flow through your life. And then watch out. Watch out. You'll see amazing things begin to happen. Jesus answers Satan's quote from the Bible with a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And and Jesus is going to respond all three times to all three temptations from the book of Deuteronomy. What happens every time is Satan takes a scripture, he twists it, he pulls it out of context, and Jesus answers and redeems that scripture. Jesus doesn't say, well, that was a typo in the scriptures. He says, listen, you're forgetting this part of the scriptures. And Jesus shows the balance that exists throughout the Bible, and Jesus puts it back in proper perspective. Verse 5, it says, Then the devil, taking him, Jesus, up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So we don't really know what this looks like, but they somehow teleport, or they're, they're in the Spirit, and they're on top of this mountain, and Jesus is visibly able to see all the kingdoms of the world, the whole world, every person, everybody there in one big view. And the devil said to him, all this authority, so the whole world, I'll give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. And this is a big deal. We've got to slow down because there's some massive, massive things we need to understand here that have a lot to do with everything going on in the world today. So remember, in, in order for this to be a temptation, it has to actually be a temptation. It has to be a temptation. So this means that Satan had to actually be able to offer Jesus the world. He had to be able to do that. If it wasn't true, then Jesus would be like, you're bluffing. It's not really a temptation. He had to be able to actually do it. When God created the earth, he put Adam in charge of it. And what scripture tells us is he made Adam a steward over the world. He put him in charge over the earth. And figuratively, he gave Adam the title deed to the earth. He said, this this, this is yours. Run it. When Adam sinned and rebelled against God, he allowed sin and death to enter the world. And in that moment, the title deed for the earth was transferred into the ownership of Satan. Satan owned the world. 
own the world. That's why there's pain. That's why there's death. That's why there's suffering. That's why there's evil. Satan owns the world. He owns the world. Why aren't we just completely destroyed? Because God's protection is on us. God can still intervene as he wishes. But Satan controls the world. He owns the world. So put this on your outline. Adam gave the title deed of the earth to Satan. He gave the title deed of the earth to Satan. That's why Satan's able to offer Jesus the earth. Look, at it, look again at what Satan says. He says, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. The Bible tells us in 1 John that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And in 2 Corinthians in your Bibles, Paul speaks about those whose minds the God of this age has blinded. That's why there's evil in the world. Satan owns the world. And when you understand what's actually happening here, you'll realize how severe the temptation is because what what has Jesus been sent to the earth to do? He's been sent to the earth to die. In some ways, he's been sent to take back the title deed for the earth. And he's been sent to make us his own. So what Satan is saying is he's saying, you know, that sounds like a lot of uh, unnecessary suffering. Why don't we make a deal? Just bow down and worship me and um, I'll give you the earth. I'll give you the earth. You can run it however you want. I'll give it back. It is a temptation for Jesus to completely bypass the whole cross. Satan's saying there's another way. But what would have happened if Jesus had accepted Satan's offer? Well, we we would have had a righteous earth. We would have had an amazing earth. But when we died, there would be no payment for our sins. When we're judged, there wouldn't be Jesus for us to point to and say, he's already paid for my sins. They're covered. That's handled. We wouldn't have that. There wouldn't be the blood of Jesus for us to point to and say, I'm clean because Jesus has already been punished for my sins. I'm glad that Jesus resisted the temptation of Satan offering him the kingdoms of the earth. I'm so glad. Here's the temptation for Jesus. Forget about eternity. Focus on this life and and make this life what matters most. So the second temptation as it applies to us is to forget the big picture and focus on the moment. Forget the big picture. Focus on the moment. Isn't that sin encapsulated right there? That's always sin. Is Sin is a moment of pleasure for long-term pain. And let me be clear. We're not talking about eternity. I'm not saying sin gives you pleasure on the earth in exchange for pain in eternity. Sin will give you pain on the earth. One of the great myths about Christianity is this idea that you sometimes get that you have to have a really crappy life here but the bonus is the next life is awesome. Scripture makes it clear, and I've seen it in my own life, that living God's way is the best way to live here and now. Here and now. It's the best life. And sin on this earth, we all know if we look at our own lives, if we're honest, every time we've taken a shortcut and done it our way instead of God's way, there's been pain and consequences for us to deal with in this life. So pain is trading a moment of pleasure for long-term pain. Resisting temptation is putting up with a moment of pain for long-term pleasure, long-term health. 
It's not only about this life and eternity. It's about the best way to live on this earth. Satan again is saying, you know, let's, let's just find another way. Let's make it come together. You don't, you don't need to follow the Father's plan. Let's come up with our own plan. That's easier. When we live for the moment, for this life, what we tend to do is we tend to show by our actions that we don't really believe we're going to live forever. When we act as though this life is about hoarding things and, and building our own kingdom here, we act like this is the only shot we've got at happiness. And we betray the gospel. Many people believe that we only have one life to live, so we should just chase pleasure and happiness with everything we have. But followers of Jesus believe our time on the earth is precious because it's the only time we have to say thank you to God by the way that we choose to live. We'll say thank you for eternity, but we'll be right there in his presence. There's nothing we can do as a response to the glory of God when we're right in front of him. We'll, We'll worship him voluntarily or involuntarily. What this life is for is for saying thank you to God for what he's done for us by the way that we choose to live, choosing to live for his glory instead of our own. That's why we believe this life is precious. And a couple of additional things we need to understand while we're on the subject. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered sin and he conquered the power of death. And in doing that, he took back the title deed for the earth from Satan. Jesus has it right now. The best metaphor we have is that he simply hasn't cashed it in yet. He hasn't cashed it in yet. He's allowing Satan to remain in control of the earth for a while longer. Now you might say, well, well, that doesn't sound very cool of Jesus. Why would he do that? The Bible tells us that he's literally giving more time for people to choose to follow him. He's giving more time for people to come into his family as sons and daughters. Because the truth is, when Jesus does cash in that title deed, his rule, his reign, his kingdom will be established on the earth. And it will be run by God. He will be perfectly just. That means that anyone who has rebelled against him or continues to rebel against him will experience justice. That's what will happen when Jesus cashes in the title deed for the earth. So he's holding back so that there's more time for people to choose to follow him. You can actually read in your Bibles about what happens when Jesus cashes in that title deed. In Revelation chapter 5, we see Jesus as the lamb that was slain opening the scroll, which is the title deed for the earth. And if you want to go home this week, you can go home and read what happens when Jesus does that. Justice has to be served because he must have justice. So Jesus owns the title deed for the earth. He's just being patient and allowing people more time out of his grace to choose to follow him. Verse 8, it says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. That's a good response. Get behind me, Satan. I encourage you to add it to your vocabulary of insults. You know, I would, uh, I would love to roll down my window just once when somebody cuts me off and yell, Get behind me, Satan. Uh, but I don't think they'd take it that well. Uh, it'd be a very original insult, though. If you know your Bibles, you know that this isn't the only time Jesus will use the phrase, get behind me, Satan. 
He'll use it again much later when he has his 12 disciples. This incident takes place. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And Satan tempts Peter in that moment. When Jesus is talking, Satan comes to Peter and says in his mind, that that doesn't sound like the work of God. Suffering and dying on a cross, that doesn't sound like God. You should speak up, say something about that. That's why Jesus says you, you don't have in mind the things of God. You're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God thinks. And Satan is continu- continues his MO of twisting and distorting what the Bible says to try and lead Jesus away from the Father's will. It's a very, very interesting thing going on here. And in the last of these three temptations, we find Jesus and we find Satan on top of the temple in Jerusalem, the holiest site in the whole world. Satan takes Jesus to church. And then he tries to lead him astray with the twisting of Scripture. And this is a massive, massive problem in the world today. You can turn on your TV, and if you find the right network for decades, we've had televangelists pulling Scripture out of context, doing literally what we see Satan doing right here. It might surprise you, but the Bible tells us that not every church is preaching the truth. Not every teacher is teaching the truth. And the Bible says in the last days, the days that we're living in, people will become more and more hungry for teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And that is what Satan is doing to Jesus, isn't it? He's showing up and he's telling Jesus what Jesus wants to hear. An easier way out. So what's the prescription for the problem? Know your Bible. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. That's why we teach through the scriptures here every Sunday. We teach through them so that you know what happened before, you know what happened after, you know the context. We teach through the scriptures so that it's much more difficult for anything to be pulled out of context. So that I can't just show up and say, uh, good news. Uh, Jesus wants you to just keep doing what you're doing. It's all good. He loves you, thinks you're super. Have a great week. I mean, I'd love to hear that message. That would be awesome. But it wouldn't be true. It wouldn't be true. So knowing your Bible is crucial to knowing the truth. I trust the Word of God so much more than I trust myself. I trust the Word of God so much more than I trust myself. And, and my desire for myself and for, for you as well is that we would all grow in our faith to the point where our first response wouldn't be, what do I think about this? but our first response would be, what does the word of God say about this? And you'll find that it's so easy to have long, huge discussions about spiritual things, about the will of God, about what God looks like in our lives. You can have a 30-minute discussion and then realize after 30 minutes, nobody's even mentioned what the Bible says. Nobody's even brought up what God says. We've just been indulging in our own opinions repeatedly. So know your Bible so that you don't get led astray, so that you know the truth. Verse 9, it says, Then he, Satan, 
brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem. So they've teleported or something, but again, in that moment, they're in Jerusalem on top of the temple. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, again, since you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan's telling Jesus, you're you're the son of God. Show everybody that you're the son of God. Nothing bad should happen to you if, if what the Bible says is true. I mean, you shouldn't even bruise your foot. Angels will scoop you up. Here's what I love. Satan is literally preaching the prosperity gospel to Jesus Christ himself. If you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, it's the idea of teaching that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy the end. That's all he wants for you. Those are his greatest goals for you. As we've talked about before, He's a loving, perfect father. And I really believe he does want you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. But even more than that, he desires that you would be like his son, Jesus Christ. And even more than that, he desires that your life would bring him glory. And sometimes he's doing something bigger through your life than making you healthy, wealthy, and happy. But I also think you need to have that balance You need to have that balance because you can also go to churches that will tell you it's more spiritual to be poor. Most of those churches are filled with young adults who don't have any money anyway. If you've ever noticed, it's not really a great thing to claim that you have a belief system based around the spirituality of being poor when you are poor. (laughs) You know, it's not really a decision you make at that point. You're just poor and now you're trying to make it spiritual. There's a balance in scripture. God wants to bless you. He does. He wants to bless you. But he has even greater goals than that for your life that he needs to take care of first. And I've said it before. I firmly believe that's why I'm not a millionaire. I'll probably never be a millionaire because I know myself. And I know if I was, my dependence on God would drop profoundly. I can't. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. I'd rely on myself way too much. Thankfully for us in the body, there are people who can handle it. I'm probably not one of them. Probably not one of them. And this is how Satan tempts all of us, isn't it? He, he comes along and, and he just says, listen, doesn't God want you to be happy? So why aren't you happy? Why aren't you happy? Doesn't, doesn't God just want everything to be awesome in your life all the time? So why does this season suck? <laughs> you know, what's, what's going on? Satan loves to do that and just dig at your faith, dig at your faith. And the subtext to all of that is, I don't know that the Father really loves you. I don't know that he really cares about you, if this is what's going on in your life. Last week, we talked about how all these temptations that Jesus faced were preparation for the temptations he would face in the future. We, we talked about how God takes us through hard seasons so that we can overcome greater obstacles in the future and have victory in our lives. This was preparation for what Jesus would face while hanging on the cross. The Bible tells us in Matthew, it says, Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, see if this sounds familiar, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus is going through the exact same 
type of test right now. Satan is saying, listen, you're the son of God. Nothing bad should happen to you. Just prove it to all these people. Prove it to all of them. Jesus could in a second when he was hanging on the cross be lifted up on the wings of a million angels and just consumed everybody who was mocking him with fire. Could have done that in a second, but instead he stays submitted to the will of the Father. He stays faithful to the Father. He stays obedient. He doesn't take the bait. He stays on the cross. In this instance, Jesus is also being tempted by Satan to put on a show in the middle of Jerusalem in front of the bustling masses. Satan's saying, why don't you just shut up all the doubters? You know what would do that if you threw yourself off the temple and then they watched angels like lift you up before you hit the ground. I mean, that would really, you know, shut up all the people saying you're not the son of God. You could be floating there in the air saying, that's what's up, you know? And everybody would believe, game over. Jesus knows that's not the way the father wants him to do it. The father wants faith to be the key factor in those who choose to follow Jesus. So Jesus has to resist that temptation. Back to the text in verse 12, it says, And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And this is Jesus' response to the prosperity gospel, the idea that only good things should happen to you. You can translate Jesus' response this way as well. On the other hand, on the other hand, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the word tempt there actually means the word test. So Jesus is saying, on the other hand, you shall not test the Lord your God. And you notice that Jesus doesn't say, that's a lie. The Bible doesn't say that angels will protect you. That's a lie. The Bible doesn't say that God wants to bless you. Jesus says, on the other hand, on the other hand, the Bible says, don't test the Lord your God. Jesus acknowledges the balance between things like 3 John 1, 2, where it says, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Jesus doesn't deny that the Bible points to a loving father who wants to bless us, even with health and wealth. But Jesus says, on the other hand, on the other hand, sometimes something bigger is going on. And he wants you to be like Jesus even more than he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The Father is working through our suffering sometimes to do something bigger than us. And Jesus knows what that's like. And most of the time, the Father uses our suffering to make us more like Jesus. We don't really become like Jesus when we're like swimming in the money bin like Scrooge McDuck, you know. I'm becoming more like Jesus, throwing coins in the air. We become more like Jesus when we learn to love the Father and trust the Father regardless of what's going on in our lives. Regardless of what's going on in our lives. Bible talks about both things. You can read James chapter 5 and the Bible says you shouldn't view anything that you have on the earth as worth anything. It's all worthless. So you have both views in scripture. You have both views in scripture. He's a loving God who wants to bless us, but on the other hand, on the other hand. And when our lives are in the on the other hand season, we're called to simply trust the Father. And this is the third temptation to reject suffering, to reject suffering. And anytime suffering shows up to just say, this is, this is not of God, this is an attack, uh, or this is not God loving me, something's horribly wrong, because God only wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The third temptation is Satan telling Jesus, just re- reject suffering. Just say, I'm the son of God. None, none of this is fitting for me. I shouldn't suffer. I'm the son of God. 
And Satan wants us to buy into the same lie. You shouldn't suffer. You're a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You shouldn't suffer. So the temptation is to reject suffering rather than draw near to God through our suffering. Satan actually leaves a phrase out. He's quoting from Psalm 91 when he quotes to Jesus. Satan says, to keep you. He says the angels are to keep you. But he leaves out the phrase, in all your ways. And that changes everything. Because when he says to keep you, he's implying, well, the Bible says angels are there to just keep you from anything bad ever happening to you. But the Bible actually says angels are there to keep you in all your ways. In other words, they're there to keep you on the path that God has laid out for you to walk. That's what they're there to do. There's a big difference between those two things. But Satan is using scripture out of context. And it's really important for us just to know that the word tempt there that shows up is is really the Greek word for test because nobody can tempt the father verse 12 is saying that it's a sin to challenge god and make him prove himself it's a sin to take the attitude of well if you're god then pass my test and make a million dollars show up in a briefcase tomorrow morning that's my test but it's a sin to also say hey if you're really god then save me from all the bad stuff happening to me bible says that's that's not a fitting attitude to have with god It's not a fitting attitude to have with the almighty God. Jesus has the right attitude. He says, the father, my father, has got nothing to prove to me. He's got nothing to prove to anybody else. And I've seen enough of the father in my life to know his credentials check out. I've got no right to ask him to prove himself to me. Interestingly enough, And I do have to point this out. There's only one spot in Scripture where God makes an exception to that. I mean, if you've probably heard it in church, it's in Malachi 3.10. It's the only place. God says this. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. It's the only place in Scripture where God says, you can test me in this. And that's why I say you'll never meet a Christian who's been a tither who says, man, worst decision I ever made. You'll never meet that Christian. You'll only meet Christians who tithe who tell you, I wish I'd started doing it sooner. I wish I'd started doing it sooner. And I have such confidence in God because it's a promise in his word. I tell people, listen, I, I don't have to prove God's faithfulness to anybody. If you're on the fence about tithing and trusting God, just do it for 90 days. See what happens. See what happens. If you don't believe God's blessing your life, church will write you a check for every dollar you gave. Seriously, because it's never going to happen because God is perfectly faithful to his word. It's the only place God says, test me in this. He says, try me out. Verse 13, it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. What we see here is Satan doesn't come back the next day. He withdraws and he waits for the right moment. You know that Satan is the father of lies. That's his title. God is the father of lights. Everything good, Satan's the father of lies. Jesus repeatedly uses the Bible, which is absolute truth, to resist the father of lies and expose every temptation for what it really is. An invitation to stop trusting God and instead disobey God. 
Jesus models what the Bible says in Psalm 119.11. He says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. When you know the Bible, when you know the Father, when you know the words of truth, it's much harder to be convinced of a lie. Much harder to be convinced of a lie. There are tragically lots of people who once considered themselves Christians whose lives have been destroyed by the lies of Satan because they simply don't know what the Bible says. Satan threw a temptation and they didn't have the comeback. They didn't know what the word of God said and they bought into the lie instead. It's one of the biggest reasons we teach the Bible here every single week is, is, let me be honest, I want every person here to have a passionate, emotional encounter with God every Sunday, but even more than that, I want every single one of us to get a serious feeding of God's word and God's truth because the truth that's hidden in our hearts will be with us on Tuesday morning. It'll be with us on Thursday morning. It'll be with us on Saturday morning and beyond that. As we enjoy the presence of God as we're about to in worship for a few minutes, man, dive into his presence. Enjoy it. Experience a high with God. But also know, man, that, that's going to wear off by this afternoon, probably. It's not a reason to not enjoy it. I'm going to go for it myself. But listen, God's word hidden in your heart will be with you and will be real this evening. It'll be with you and it'll be real tomorrow morning when you get up. That's why the word of God is so valuable. And that way when we're tempted, we'll be able to have victory just like Jesus had victory. We'll be able to stand strong just like Jesus stood strong. No matter what temptation is thrown at us, we'll be able to resist. And doesn't that sound like real freedom? I mean, the freedom to not be hooked and baited again and again and again, often by the same thing, just pulled away, pulled away like an animal. The power of God's word gives us victory over all of those temptations. Did you notice that Jesus didn't once rely on any superpower? He never said, God punch and like decked Satan onto the ground or anything like that. Nothing just uses the word of God, says this is what the truth is. You can't deny it. This is what the truth is. This is your last fill-in. Very simply, we can do what Jesus did. We can do what Jesus did. We're both just as capable of resisting temptation as Jesus. We have the same tools, the scriptures that Jesus had, and we can choose to submit to the authority of the Father just like Jesus did. That's a reason for hope this morning. That's a reason for hope. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment? I just want us to spend some time in prayer. I want to ask you to just consider your life. Consider what's going on in your life. What are the temptations that you're facing? If we're honest, for many of us, (laughs) Satan doesn't have to get very creative. He just finds the pressure point and then he squeezes again and again and again. And he just keeps coming back because it's our weakest point. I just want to ask you to be be honest with yourself this morning. Examine your heart and ask the question, do you trust the Father? Do you trust the Father? Do you trust that his plan for your life really is best Or have you bought into a lie? Do you believe that 
your suffering is somehow some type of punishment from God or evidence that He doesn't love you? Or are you allowing the Holy Spirit to say, listen, you're experiencing the pain of living in a fallen world. You're experiencing the pain of a world that Satan is still running. But listen, here's the good news. God promises that he will work all things for good. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say everything happens for a reason. He says he will redeem every situation. He'll do something good through it. He'll make you more like Jesus. He will show you more of himself. If you're in a place of suffering, do not buy into the lie that the Father has left you or that he doesn't love you. You're just experiencing a fallen world. And it makes us long for heaven. It makes us ache and hunger for the presence of God. That's the way it should be. But there's a reason for hope because he works all things for good. He does. So would you take a moment and and just in the stillness of this moment, be still before the Lord, examine your heart and just, just say, God, show me what I believe. Show me what I really believe. And show me if I'm believing a lie.